Hello and welcome to Start Your Week for Monday the 7th of November, setting up at the seven days ahead. I'm Andrew Harrison and first I must apologise publicly for telling Alexandreo the score for Liverpool versus Spurs yesterday before <laughs> he'd seen it. Alex, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I apologise to bottom my heart, but I don't apologise for the results. Uh, whatever. You just wanted to... <laughs> You just wanted to bring up the result. <laughs> I, 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 I honestly wanted to apologise. Let's I, move on to the news, shall we? Doesn't everybody watch football live these days? Anyway, never mind that. <laughs> Let's get into what we can expect over the next week. The, the big story, obviously, the big thing that will be dominating the news is the US midterm elections, which are taking place tomorrow, Tuesday. All 435 seats in the House, a third of the Senate, 36 state governorships, and a whole load of other things like dog catchers and, you know, I don't know, municipal <laughs> vampire warden or whatever. Yes, They're yes. all up. It looks like some early optimism about how the Democrats may fare has been fading badly. Looks like the Republicans are on course to paralyze US politics over the final two years of Biden's initial term. And hovering over all of that is the prospect that Trump might finally declare that he'll run in 2024. So, Alex, mm. are the Democrats looking desperate? I would say so. I mean, okay, so, so it's important to point out that the Democrats had always been behind despite being ahead, slightly ahead in the national polls, which they still are, they had always been slightly behind in the midterms because of the seats being contested and the way the sort of voter breakdown is in each of them. The most likely scenario had always been that the Democrats would lose one of the two Houses of the Congress. Initially, it looked more likely they would lose the Senate and keep the House. It then became much more likely that they would lose the House and keep the Senate. And recently, because of movement in the polls, a nightmare scenario emerged that they could lose both the House and the Senate. Mm. Um, and I think that's why they're sort of throwing everything at the campaign now a lot of money into advertising, Barack Obama touring everywhere, because I think losing the house is now pretty much priced in. But if they lose both, they could be in for two years of very, very rough legislative battles. We're talking about things like a federal ban on abortion and stuff like that. Of course, it's also important to point out that the president can stop that kind of legislation by executive order. But the point is that they can make Biden dance to their agenda for, for the remaining two years before the presidential election. And they can use the budget ceiling as a pressure point. I'm sure you and our listeners remember what happened in the latter stages of the Obama administration. Not the very last stage, because actually they recaptured the House, but in the middle to last third, when the Republicans would refuse to raise the debt ceiling. Yeah. So basically, they would refuse to raise the budget in order to pay for debt that they had already incurred. And this became a pressure point. So they would constantly extract promises and concessions from the Democrats in order to raise the, the budget ceiling. And in the meanwhile, the paralysis out in the country at large looked as if it was the fault of the Democrats because they were ostensibly in charge. They had the presidency. 
So that that's where the big, big problem lies. They can basically create a hellscape across the United States, and they know that voters will primarily blame Biden for it. I've got a strong feeling that hellscape is going to turn out to be the word of the year for 2022. <laughs> uh, uh, you, you point out the executive powers which Biden would be restricted to if, he, if it would, the Democrats were to lose Congress. Executive powers don't have tax raising powers, do they? So that presumably would be curtains for the climate and clean energy plans. We will see. Like I said, there, there's a lot of wheeling and dealing. Yeah. Um, and, and it has to be said, said that since the act passed, a lot of the lobby that would traditionally be against that kind of act is actually pumping a lot of investment into renewables and green and things like that. So at some point, that balance shifts. I don't know if we're at that point yet, and Mm. we'll talk a little bit about COP later, but the point is that there will be a tipping point in the future where the the vast bulk of the lobby and the energy money is actually on the clean energy side mm. when suddenly the Republicans will become the biggest advocates for clean energy. And like I said, I don't know if that's now or slightly in the future, but it, it's coming. Yeah. And what would it mean for Ukraine? Because the noise is coming out of the Republicans about uh, open-ended commitments and the great cost of this. And, you know, th- this is all very, very contrary to what you would traditionally mm. expect from Republican position on Russian expansionism. But, of course, we're not, you know, this this isn't your granddad's Republican Party anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the Ukraine policy will hold, and that's because it's primarily controlled by the White House. But I think... It will be tested, and not just in America, and this is something we predicted many months ago, it will be tested in Europe as well. I I think as people begin to feel the pain of higher energy prices during this winter season, if the war looks as if there's no end to it, which it probably will in the dead of winter, you know, because sides tend to entrench and hold their position during the winter months, there will begin to be rumblings. We're already seeing movement in the polls where, uh, for example, in the UK, the vast majority of people are still supporting Ukraine, but they're beginning to shift if that means extra pain for them, you know, in their wallet. And so that's now just over 50%. So if you ask people, do you support Ukraine they will break 70 to 80% for that. If you ask people, do they would they still support Ukraine if it meant even higher bills, it's now only a very slight majority that say yes. You know, I would advise people to, to um, have a look at 538, which is the sort of definitive aggregator of polling across the, across the United States. The most likely scenario had been for a long time that the uh, Republicans would take the House and Democrats will keep the Senate, but that prediction is now 29%. And the most likely scenario has now become that Republicans would take both House and Senate at 53%. There is a small but significant chance of 17% of the Democrats keeping both, but that's you know, that would rather require a lot of dominoes to fall very kindly for them. The the gubernatorial races break a lot more evenly and look 
look better for the Democrats. There's few flip states. And they're hugely important, by the way, because it's usually the the governor that's, that sets election rules. And as yeah. we move closer to the next presidential election, in many, many ways, those gubernatorial races are even more important than the House or the Senate. Well, that's, that's, that's a very important point, isn't it? Because this is more than just who gets to control the political agenda for the next couple of years. Biden has rightly framed it as a, a battle to preserve American democracy. We're looking at a roll call of very strange people, such as the Trump-endorsed footballer Herschel Walker, TV celebrity Dr. Mehmet Oz, the hillbilly elegy author J.D. Vance, all kinds of, I think uh, Maureen Dowd of the New York Times called it the Marjorie Taylor Greening of America. So yeah. we, we may well be ha- in for a, a phase where Congress is a factory for conspiracy theory and governors are a machinery of election rigging, of denying the votes. So it's very, very, mm. very, very worrying stuff. I mean, to call that a strange bunch, I think, is a very kind way of putting it. <laughs> uh, there, there are quite a lot of people that are out and out loons in there. There could be a school of thought that, th- that says having those people in power before the presidential election might actually be good for the Democrats because they will polarize things, they will fire up the Democratic base to vote, they will reveal themselves to be absolute idiots. You know, there's, there's nothing that exposes yeah um, someone more than being in a position of responsibility and i would say that 9 times out of 10 at any point in the last 30 years but right now i don't know man yeah i i don't th- i don't think that saying the best way to show you don't want a tasmanian devil going crazy in your kitchen is <sighs> to release a tasmanian devil to go crazy in your kitchen not it wouldn't be my first choice well, I mean, it's just America. America is such a strange place right now. The political discourse is so degraded that I don't know. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, speaking of degraded political discourse, back home, it's a little late in the year for Sports Day, but we've got the sack race. Suella Braverman with her security <laughs> leaks and the Manson scandal versus Gavin Williamson and his foul-mouthed texter, ex-chief whip Wendy Morton. I think uh, Gavin's probably slightly ahead in this particular site race. Sunak pointedly said that his texts were unacceptable. Uh, We ran, there's a very, very authoritative Twitter poll run by the respected podcast, Oh God, What Now, over the weekend. 75% (laughs) Williamson to get the sack, 25% Braverman to go. Is uh, is Williamson toast? No, I don't think either of them will go, I'm afraid. God. That's my glum prediction. That doesn't Mm -hmm. mean it won't happen, but New prime ministers tend to resist calls to sack anyone. They might go in the next mini reshuffle in four, five months' time. Mm. But I doubt they will go now because I think prime ministers have become hyper-aware. This this has always been the case, but they've recently become hyper-aware that if you give in once on one person, you know, the lobby, as it were, the opposition, the journalists, etc., decamp and move on to the next person that has done something scandalous. That doesn't mean they shouldn't go. They should. Obviously, both of them shouldn't even be in post. That's the point. Mm. But I don't think they will go because to display that kind of witness would mean that 
let's say Williamson goes, everyone would then move on to Braverman and say yeah. why she's still in post. So I think he will resist. And it seems to me that the peak of the Braverman problem is past now because she's basically moving migrants out of Manston to anywhere, <laughs> you oh. know, to hotels, to cruise ships, to she dumped a couple of busloads of them in Victoria with nowhere to go. And so I think she's safe for now unless something additional comes out, which is, by the way, very possible. My prediction last week was that something new will emerge about Braveman towards the tail end of this week so that her sacking can be used to cover any kind of negative fallout from the budget which is coming next week. I know that's very Machiavellian, but if Sunak were inclined to get rid of one of the two of them, he wouldn't do it now. He would do it a day after the budget mm. if they're getting absolutely slated by the newspapers for their measures. So that's a pinch point to look at. Has she got what I mean? Horrible and depressing and ugly though it's been. Has she actually got what she wanted out of this uh, this entire scandal? Because you know people like us are enraged. She gets to use hate speech like invasion and Albanian criminals with impunity. The Express and the Mail are now referring to her by her first name. You know, is it is it a is it a case of uh, you know achievements unlocked from her point of view? Totally, I'm afraid. You know, there wasn't a way for this to be handled that could have gone a different way. Everyone was looking for a shorthand, especially the right-wing papers were looking for a shorthand way to refer to what's going on in the with channel crossings, and Albanian criminals has provided that. And as unfair and ludicrous as it is, it's now the prevailing narrative. You now have the BBC devoting their front-page story to... Albanian criminal gangs, and it creates a perception in the country, oh. especially in those parts of the country that have no immigrants, which we know from the Social Attitudes Survey are the parts that are always most afraid and concerned about immigrants. You know, London is has loads of immigrants and it's really relaxed about yeah. immigrants. But you go to some home counties town that has zero immigration, and it's all they ever talk about. And so I think it has become a prevailing narrative and a prevailing conversation in pubs up and down the country. And there's very little uh, the opposition or progressive commentators can do that, except let it die and wait for the next thing to rear its head. You mentioned the fiscal statement, which is coming up on November the 17th. Jeremy Hunt has been flying a £60 billion package, including tax rises, but at least £35 billion in cuts. The Telegraph today is freaking out that he's plotting a £10 billion tax grab from the better off on pension contributions, or what we would call paying your fair share. Uh, what kind of mix mm. of cuts and taxes are you expecting? Just painful? Yeah, it's going to, from what is being briefed, it's going to lean slightly more heavily into cuts rather than tax rises. I think the opposition's job is to keep pushing the point, and it's an absolutely fair point, that this money is primarily 
to cover a black hole of the conservatives making. Mm. This is literally to pay for the fuck up of trust. And it's the trust tax. Yeah, it is. It, it's, you know, the, the Bank of England came out last week and the governor said that while there are prevailing headwinds around the world and around Europe to do with Ukraine, to do with energy prices, to do with high inflation, to do with disrupted uh, uh, supply chains, to do with China. All of that is true, but he said there is a UK premium. So the rates at which the UK can borrow went up and the price of gilts went the other way during that period of instability of trust and quarting. So there is no doubt that for the next two years, we will be paying for the Conservatives' cock-up. And that is a point to push and push hard. Having said that, a little observation, I don't know if you thought about this, but during the trust quarting fiasco, I came to appreciate much more why chancellors leak a few things and fly a few kites ahead of the budget, which has been a, a subject that most commentators have frowned upon for the last decade. Osborne really was doing quite a lot of it. But I think seeing what happened with Adquarting mini-budget, an element of why it went so badly wrong was that it took the markets completely by surprise. And I now see the value of a chancellor leaking bits and pieces mm. so that effectively you get the statement and very little is not priced in. There will still be a couple of rabbits to pull out of a hat, but they tend to have smaller fiscal impact and they tend to be things that the markets are unlikely to react badly to. Elsewhere, the Royal College of Nursing is expected to vote for a national strike for the first time ever after years of derisory pay offers. First time they've balloted their members on strike action in its 106-year history. They're probably going to vote for it. This is not going to be a strike the government can brand as lazy left-wing chaos agents, is it? They will try, but it will be very hard to do. I think the, the framing the government is choosing at the moment is to say, be very careful, nurses, to think of the impact this will have on patients, as if nurses won't have thought yeah. of the impact this will have on fucking patients. I mean, it's insulting to even frame it that way, but that's the way they're going to go. Important to note, loads of ancillary professions are also going out on strike with them, or they look as if they will. People like physiotherapists and, and microbiologists and people like that. COP27 is going to continue this week. Uh, as we said on a daily that went out the weekend, the expectation is for sort of financial and technical updates rather than major new commitments. Uh, Rishi Sunak says he's going to push for clean growth, whatever that means, as he's finally going there. And also the build-up to the Qatar World Cup which starts on the 21st November, is getting increasingly fractious. FIFA has asked competitors to nations to focus on the football, whereupon 10 European FAs, including England and Wales, replied that human rights are universal and apply everywhere. Is this going to get more um, ticklish, do you think, as we get up, get up to the kickoff, Alex? Yes, I think so. I think footballers recently, and, and sports people actually in general, 
they have found their sea legs when it comes to political issue, and nothing FIFA will say will stop that. It, it is as simple as that. They will raise issues of racism. They will raise issues of homophobia. They will raise issues of human rights infringements. And f there is nothing FIFA can do because they will do it in sufficient numbers that render FIFA completely powerless, effectively, on it. On COP27, I mean, who cares what Sunak says? Mm. He wasn't even going to go until three days ago. I, I found it very odd that they're now briefing you know, about his statement to the world. It will be a primarily technical conversation, but that doesn't mean it's not important. It's basically the year when people check on whether countries have come good on their commitments from last year, especially money-wise, and the vast majority of them have not. Finally, a bit of good news about the National Trust. You may have seen that a right-wing outfit called Restore Trust has been trying to take control of the venerable heritage organisation. Well, this weekend, all seven of its candidates were defeated in the AGM. Restore Trust is waging a campaign against the Trust talking about the slave trade. Uh, it's trying to stop its involvement in pride and transgender rights. It's also against rewilding for some reason. And as soon as they lost, they attacked the voting system, which seems to be very on brand. This was amusing, wasn't it, Alex? <laughs> it's, stop very, the it's very stop the steal. Yes. Uh, only the very, the very, very British equivalent of it. <laughs> you know, where where side factions battle over <laughs> control of the national trust. They didn't just get beaten, they got trounced. And that was very, very satisfying to see because they had run a very, very organized campaign mm. to unseat people on the board and go to what they thought was uh, the core mission of National Trust, which is to just, you know, close its eyes to any ills of the past. I really don't, don't know how they, they think that. But I have to say that the progressive elements within the National Trust reacted brilliantly and coordinated their side of the campaign even better. And I understand there's never been a higher vote in the history of the National Trust than this last AGM, which is wonderful to see. And that's the end of Start Your Week. Thanks for getting up early, Alex. My pleasure. Listeners, thank you for joining us. Uh, we're here every Monday, as you know, and there's a brand new daily every day. Like the National Trust, we depend on your support. So if you want to help us out, search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how you can get early ad-free editions, special merchandise, and of course, a shout-out on the podcast, because we've got to start doing them on Start Your Week from now on. So here's a big thank you to Daffith Griffiths, Paul, Jack Brudenell, Sugarbush Records, and Beth Dawson. More next week. We'll see you all tomorrow. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Andrew Harrison with Alex Andreu. The producer was Alex Reese with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.